folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G-E-E-S, emil.gorgis at tokyorealty.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. So really interesting conversation for today's episode. Uh, this is a long and detailed chat that I've had recently with a new investor or rather a new wannabe investor. He lives in Japan. He's really interested in getting into the property investment market here, but he has a hard time getting his spouse, in, in this case, his Japanese wife, on board with him with the idea. Now, this is quite a common occurrence between international couples here in Japan. The Japanese by nature are very risk averse, and the idea of investing in anything, real estate or otherwise, can be quite scary for many of them, not to say most of them. So we talk at some length about how one might explain the concept of property investment to a Japanese spouse or to any Japanese person, really, and how the factors involved in such an explanation can be quite different to the process of explaining the merits of property investment to non-Japanese. Now, part of that conversation is, of course, addressing legitimate concerns, which are related to risk or loss of income throughout the investment life cycle. So we also talk about handling vacancies, natural disasters, and other risks, how to appeal to various tenant profiles when the property is vacant, why there isn't really such a thing as passive income. We talk about securities and we also touch on reselling properties. So how the mathematics of resale value actually work in Japan. Uh, we touch on insurance coverage and of course, a little bit about our own services, why you might want to use them and how much they cost. And then, which was an added bonus, uh, and by this caller's request, we also do a deal analysis of two cheaper entry-level property investments in the 5 to 6 million yen range, so 50 to 60,000 US. We break down the due diligence process, we review the numbers, we explain what's involved in every step of the deal analysis process itself, and why we chose to greenlight those particular deals, which is something we haven't done here in the podcast for quite some time. And if you're tuning in via the podcast, meaning audio only, you might want to hop over to a YouTube channel. I'll link to the video in the episode show notes so that you can actually see the spreadsheets that we're reviewing together. So very interesting call, very nitty gritty, number crunching type of session, but also a lot of higher level stuff related to investor mentality, risk appetite, 
and the differences in mindset between Japanese and non-Japanese when it comes to investing, uh, risk appetite, problem solving, all of that stuff. So sit back, grab a coffee or a drink and enjoy the ride. I'll see you again on the other side. Okay, cool. So you had a bunch of questions that you wanted to go through first, right? Yeah, so basically, I mean, we've talked several times and, um, you know, I said uh, that I might be interested in uh, starting investing in real estate and I couldn't kind of, you know, convince my wife that it was, uh, you know, uh, the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, we kind of, I, I remember we were kind of going back and forth on email and you were like, look, if if she's not into it, then you, there's no real way beyond that. But I think if, um, I mean, from all the, you know, podcasts that I've listened to you and all the YouTube videos and stuff that I've watched, I mean, you have, you do a good, a good job of explaining everything very, very uh, logically and basically. So I was thinking um, there's, there has to be a way for, but it just seems like I'm missing something when I try to explain it uh, to other people and to her. So basically, for a person like me who's lives in Japan, I have permanent residency, married to a Japanese. Um, could you, could we first talk about just the basics of why investing in real estate is uh, is a good a good option? Yep. You know, um, uh, I think people that you know, I'm from America, so people that come from America, they they look, they think about real estate as buying low and selling high. So, uh, so that doesn't really compute um, with the Japanese. I mean, I guess it does, but uh, but that's not why you invest in Japanese real estate. No, so. and you're right. It's um, it doesn't fit with the usual. Like, if you look at real estate in other places around the world, Japan's not the only place which is um, not quite within that formula, but. Most places around the world, especially in um, especially in uh, markets that are constantly expanding or growing and so forth, um, is is a more of a speculative um, character, right? So, like you say, you buy low, you sell high, and that means that you're assuming that the value will go up over time, or that you can do something to it somehow bring up its value um, via some sort of work that you might be doing on it um, to then sell it a profit that's not really the case here and to be honest that hasn't been the case um, in many places around the world until the last few decades so if you look at my dad for example i grew up in israel and my dad you know is of the generation which um sort of assume that you buy property, you rent it out by the month and you collect a sort of a monthly paycheck. And once, you know, once enough time has passed and you've covered the cost of your, um, of your investment, then anything beyond that is just a bonus, right? And that's right. sort of how the market still operates here. Um, to some degree, I mean, you do occasionally hit on a particular area or a particular time, uh, economic time that you, where it can gain in value more significantly than it would normally but here it's more of the rarity than the norm just in the sense that the um the, the economy here is fairly stable in some decades it's been stagnant 
Um, and generally, people invest here for different reasons. And, and there's pros and cons to that. So the downside, I suppose, is that you're probably not going to see great leaps and bounds in your property value. It, it will usually stay where it was. It might gain slightly or it might um, lose value slightly, but it's generally speaking, except some extreme end cases, it's going to stay around the same value. Mm -hmm. And the exceptions to that might be, or has been in, in recent years, central Tokyo, central Osaka, and um, outliers like, for example, Fukuoka City was completely unknown until about you know seven, eight years ago. And then it sort of came on the map and started growing in value. But mostly the, the attractive locations around Japan have been pretty much mapped out already. So that's not likely to happen unless you get very lucky. Mm -hmm. And with the shrinking population, um, that usually means that, you know, the, the GDP, the, the general economy has only so much room to grow. I mean, if the population is decreasing by, I don't know, three, 4% every year, then the economy can only grow so much, right? Like it can advance, uh, let's put it this way, an economy that expands at somewhere between one to 2%, which is what Japan's economy usually does in normal times. Um, if you're looking at a population that's shrinking at, you know, three, four percent, then that one, two percent economic growth is like five or six percent in a normal place that's actually growing in population. Right. So mm -hmm. we don't expect expect any huge growth here. That's the downside, I suppose. And the upside is that it's it's a very stable cash flow sort of sort of monthly salary uh, money in the bank kind of market. So the tenants are stable. They don't tend to move out much. They definitely don't have too many payment issues. You very rarely um, have to kick anyone out for, you know, lack of payment or, you know, having problems with the neighbors or people squatting or, or just completely not paying the rent. Doesn't really happen here much. Mm -hmm. And even on the very rare occasions that it does happen, all you need to do is, you know, ask them to leave and off they go kind of thing. So it's a very safe and stable uh, tenancy market. Right. Um, whereas in other countries, you have more of these issues. Like in the States, for example, if you want to kick someone out of a property, I mean, depending on the state, but in many states, it's going to be a case of uh, forced evictions and applying to court and waiting for a year or two until you can actually physically remove them from the property. Right. That just doesn't happen here. Right. And yeah. even on the um, smaller, cheaper properties with the lower rents, which are usually the cash cows because they tend to generate higher percentage yields. Mm -hmm. So in other countries, if you're buying into these kinds of properties, you're buying into problem tenants, basically low mm -hmm. income tenants or no income tenants or government supported like welfare recipients and so forth. Right. But here, even this population segment is not troublesome i mean they might occasionally be late or, or short on a payment but they usually catch up within the next month or two mm -hmm. and there's no there's no ghettos or drug labs or you know like people squatting in a property that just doesn't exist in japan right so if i had to boil it down basically um the mechanism for uh, making money on a japanese real estate investment is you put down a little bit of money up front, or I mean, you, you make a purchase up front that's typically less expensive than you would, say, like in California, where I used to live. Yep. And 
and that's like a cash payment. And then you make uh, a little bit of money every month in the form of rent payments that come to you minus any, um, you know, uh, other expenses that is related to the upkeep of, of the facility. And then when the time is right or when you're, when you're ready, when you need them to, the, to move the money to a different place, or maybe you, you, you want to, um, you know, buy a, a different place, then you can sell it and expect to, to make back the money that you paid to purchase it. Plus that, whatever you would have gained in rent by that time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I think what it's difficult, I think it was difficult, like, I'm not sure if even Japanese people, your your run-of-the-mill Japanese person, understands how the real estate market works for investment in Japan e- either. Um, so when I'm trying to explain this, say to my wife, she doesn't understand, you know, just that that simple like monetary understanding of. I guess there's no. I guess she's afraid that there would be no guarantee that you'll make your money back, or that you know you'll come out positive. Yeah. And, so you know, wh- wh- when you talk to a Japanese person, they're actually comparing it to to other things. So if you talk to your typical Western person, they compare it to, like you said, to well, you know, in other places, I'm definitely going to be gaining in value. Right. Whether that's true or not is a different story. I'd argue that it's not necessarily true in other places as well. But the general assumption is that real estate tends to go up. Yeah. And then when they're comparing real estate that just, you know, stays at the same value versus real estate that tends to go up, then they're thinking that they're probably better off investing in other places that actually do ha- at least stand a higher chance to gain in value. Right. Right. Uh, so for them, what, what emphasizes the attractivity of the market here in Japan is the stability and hassle-free nature of it. Right. Right. So it's actually, yeah. we're actually, to people who are used to investing overseas, what we're advertising here in Japan is lower risk factor, more stability, and more um, regular income. Right. When you're explaining this to a Japanese person, the, the, the conversation is a little bit different because... Just by nature, they're very risk averse. And the, yeah. the general frame of mind in Japan is you don't invest at all. You just save your money in a bank or under the mattress if you're an older generation kind of person. And right. you just keep it until you need it kind of thing, right? So for them, mm-hmm. what you need to explain is the whole concept of why it's worthwhile investing in anything, right, from the get-go. Right. So they're coming from a perspective of zero risk, um, whereas you, we're talking to them about investment of any kind, whether it's real estate or anything else, there is always going to be a certain risk factor. And they're wondering, why should we even risk it? We can just keep our money. So right. to explain to a Japanese person why it's worth investing is just a, a case of saying, well, if, if you just hold on to your money and not do anything with it, if and when cost of living does go up, or consumption tax goes up, or um, you know your 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 buying capacity is for some reason reduced, then that money that you've saved has actually lost its value. So it's not a matter of you know being on zero or being on plus with some risk. It's comparing like what what they really need to wrap their head around is the fact that their money actually is not sitting at zero gains, zero loss. It's actually losing in value gradually every year. Yeah. 
And from that perspective, um, it's worth to put it into something that, you know, I mean, real estate is generally considered to be um, the safest type of investment aside from maybe like locking your money in a bank account with a fixed term deposit interest rate kind of thing, right? Right, right. But the banks will never give you an interest rate that's attractive because the banks are subject to the same inflationary or deflationary forces that you are. So if you're looking at Japan, for example, um, at the moment, because they've been deflationary for so long, there's virtually zero interest on any money that you put in the bank. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's so I guess the question is, what, like, if, if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, you asked um, what is it good for? Like, why, why would I actually invest? Well, the question is not whether it's good or bad. Is, is it good compared to what? Mm -hmm. Right? So if your wife has crossed the threshold of understanding why it's better to invest than to not invest, then we can explain why real estate is more attractive in certain aspects than other types of investment. But if she hasn't even crossed that threshold and she's still thinking that just saving the money, even though it doesn't grow, just saving the same amount of money and adding a little bit to, be, a little bit to it every month. Um, if she still thinks that this is, you know, the most, sa the safest risk, riskless way to go, and she'd be right about that. I mean, there's zero risk in doing that, except for the fact that you're losing value. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think it's, it's that she's so risk averse and I don't think it's that she, um, or anyone in, in who hasn't pulled the trigger on on you know on starting investing, uh, they may just can't, maybe they just can't wrap their mind around um, you know the the mechanism of it all. Like put you know spending twenty thousand or fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars, getting a little bit of money every month, and then you know in ten or twenty years or whatever selling that and getting that you know that initial investment right back uh i don't think i mean the, i think people always think the worst is going to happen probably you know like they so, so they they put down the money and buy the the apartment and then and then what i mean okay let, let's put it this way right. let's take a worst yeah. case scenario what's going to happen like a natural disaster or insurance covers that yeah okay so all right <laughs> check that off or or you know i mean that doesn't the, necessarily the tenant, the tenant moves out and no one ever moves back in i mean it's just you know just I, i'm not saying these are logical thoughts i'm just saying yeah you know these are probably the, you know the things that are swirling in a lot of people's heads yeah so i mean look excel sheets do tend to help with that so if mm -hmm. if you show her what happens with the property then you can also show her on the same excel sheet you can show her a worst case scenario right you can say right what happens if it stays vacant for a year and then we can explain in various terms we can explain what we do so um that the there's a bit and that that's also i think a little bit of a japanese thing there's this tendency to um oh something happened well shogunai there's nothing i can do about it now so i'll just sit and wait for it to go away mm -hmm. but that's not a very right. proactive attitude towards investment so yeah for example if we take the case that you've described where a property becomes vacant well okay so it's be it's been vacant for a month or two or three months but we are in touch with the property manager who's advertising it and we ask them okay how many clicks on the ad did you get this month 
of the people who are clicking, how many have actually gone and looked at the, the detailed ad. Of that amount of people, how many have actually picked up the phone and called you? And then how many have actually come to inspect the property? And based on where we see the drop, like for example, if there's, you know, if the property comes up in search results, you know, in a relatively large number of search results, but no one's actually clicking on the ad, we can safely assume that there are other comparable properties in that area that come up in the same list of search results, which are more attractive even without clicking on them, right? Mm, which leads yeah. us to think that we should be looking at those lists and you know compare the rent prices, compare the size of the apartments, compare the, the distance to the station. What makes others more attractive than ours? Right. And if people are actually clicking on it, but then nobody picks up the phone and calls and we think, okay, well, they are interested in it, the fundamentals of it. They like the price, they like the location, they like the distance, but when they actually click and look at the photos, they're not too excited about it. Right. So maybe we need to do some, maybe we need to make a nicer renovation. Maybe we need to offer them some bonus that, you know, other properties are not offering. Like for example, the first month of free rent, or maybe the, the, the fees that are involved in moving in, the, the shikikin, the reikin, the everything that we're saying that they'll need to pay is not super attractive. So we can offer them that the uh, landlord will carry some of those costs. So there are things that we can do to, as long as we got our finger on the pulse and we're checking checking the status every month and seeing what's actually happening with the vacancy, then we can fine tune and tweak it until we end up getting a tenant. Right. Right. And, yeah. and those are the things, I mean, if people are being very, I mean, people like to, to toss around the phrase passive income. It's never passive, right? You need to be right. involved. You need to um, understand what's happening around you. For example, you know, and a new building goes up in the neighborhood, then there's going to be brand new, maybe probably bigger apartments available for sale. And yes, rent will be higher, but how much higher is it? Like if you're talking about a 5,000 yen or 6,000 yen difference, then anybody would obviously prefer to live in a newer apartment. So if that sort of thing happened, that tells us that unfortunately, we again, we either have to drop the rent a little bit to be more competitive, or we need to mm -hmm. offer something that the newer apartment wouldn't be offering. Right. If we're next to a university, maybe there nobody's offering furnished apartments in that area, you know. So for a thousand bucks, we can put in, you know, a bunch of basic furniture in there. And that would appeal to students who don't want to buy furniture if they're just staying there for two or four years, right? Right. So it, it's never passive in the sense that, I mean, you're not the property manager yourself. You're not going to be dealing with the tenants and receiving their maintenance requests and, and complaints on a regular basis. But you do need to be involved, especially if and when there's something happening. So if the property becomes vacant, if anything becomes a bit too old, um, if anything becomes, um, again, less competitive compared to other comparable properties in that same area, you need to be proactive. And Japanese property managers, as a rule, um, because again, of the Japanese psyche that, that dictates that they, they prefer not to do anything that they might, you know, might end up uh, biting them in the bum later on. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to be making any amazing suggestions to you unless you actually push and prod and be proactive with them and ask them, okay, well, that's not happening. What are we going to do next? Make some suggestions. What have you seen work? You actually have to push them into action in many cases. Right. Um, otherwise, they'll, again, they'll adopt the same mentality. Well, it's, you know, it's not happening. It's a bad time of year, but the landlord hasn't suggested anything. So I'm, I'm not going to suggest anything myself kind of thing. Right. And some of them are different, but generally that seems to be the norm. Okay. All right. I get that. All right, cool. Um, so before we start looking at the spreadsheet, and I do want to look at that. Um, 
just a couple of like basic questions you can probably just answer very quickly. Um, and just some things that I, I've often wondered uh, about this uh, system of, of uh, real estate. But um, what are the, how, for example, if you, if you buy uh, one unit in an apartment building, yeah. is there any chance that that apartment building, the whole building is going to be sold out from under you? Or, or how does that work? Like, what's, what's the system? So there's always, the, it's not necessarily a risk. Sometimes it can be a good thing, although generally it's not going to be a huge bonus. But um, if the building is old enough at some point, and especially if we're talking about smaller structures that are sitting on larger land parcels, which makes them a lot more attractive to developers because they can actually build something bigger or fancier there. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, when the property becomes a bit older, then developers will start kind of circling and sniffing around the area, especially if it's a popular area, and start looking at um, properties like this that they might be able to convince people to sell off. And then they need to, for major decisions like selling off or, or demolishing a property, then the owner union needs to be in 80% agreement. So they need 80% of the uh, votes to, to vote aye before they can pull off a decision like that. So what the developers will usually do is, um, if it's a small number of unit owners, let's say it's like 20 or 25 units, then you know they'll just start a, a convincing kind of campaign and they'll try to explain to people, not necessarily true, but they'll try to convince people that, oh, the building's getting really old and you know maintenance is going to be really high very soon and it's going to cost you more and more. You're not going to be making any money off it. Might as well sell it now. Mm -hmm. And they're not going, I mean, in extreme cases, if the building is really small and the land parcel is really big, then they might make a really good offer um, because it's worth their time. So they might offer uh, market uh, a price that's higher than market price. Mm -hmm. Or they might offer to um, demolish the building, build a new one, and then give each and every owner a new unit in the new block. Okay. But in most cases, that's not going to be the case. So in most cases, they're going to want to um, maximize their uh, profits and minimize the purchase price. Mm -hmm. So they're going to try and push people into selling for as low as possible. It's usually not right. going to be much below market price or much below the price that you've purchased for. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't expect it to be sold at a big profit just because it's a developer. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a bad thing. We have had some cases where we were, um, we were bought out. And again, another factor that comes into play is how long have you actually owned the property before that happened? Mm -hmm. Right. So if you've owned the property for 10 years, you've made a nice substantial rental income and you've already almost accrued all of your um, capital back then even a lower price is okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. I but see. if you've just purchased it six months ago and immediately somebody comes in and says, I'll buy it off you for the same price, then you know, you, it's kind of a wasted six months, like nothing much has been gained. Right. Um, which is why we would tend to, I mean, that's one of the reasons, there are others, but that's one of the reasons that we would tend to focus on properties that are not too old, just to give you a bit of, um, a bit of leeway and a bit of extra runway before these offers or these considerations start coming in. And when they do come right. in, it's, it's not an immediate thing. So again, they need to get 80% agreement from the owner union members, mm -hmm. which means that they'll often um, like they'll come in one year and then they'll buy two or three or four units at reasonable market prices. 
And then that gives them three or four votes on the owner union council. Mm -hmm. And then from within, they'll try to influence whoever is the elected chairman of the owner union. And they'll try to, you know, either semi-legally or legally just, you know, give them some gifts on New Year's, send them on a holiday, try to get them on their side and try to convince them to convince the other owners to sell. Right. And those sort of campaigns that they embark on um, can take a few years. Like we've had a case where the first initial contact was made five years prior to the actual sale. Mm -hmm. Um, But they don't mind. If it's a good enough property in a good enough location, they can make a good enough profit from it. So they're looking long term. Okay. So it's nothing to be freaked out about, but it is better to buy something younger so that you'll have at least five, six, seven, ten years before that happens. Right. And part of the due diligence that is done is to kind of mitigate that chance, right? Definitely should be done. Yeah. So if yeah. we are if if we're serving a customer, then we would always be pointing out that they want to look at um, if it's an owner union type of situation, they want to look at properties that are thirty years and younger. Mm-hmm. And it's not long only because of that. There's also new legislation that's supposed to be coming in at some point, which will make it a bit more um, challenging for owner unions to um, to qualify with government regulations on maintenance. Um, which might mean that building fees will start going up a bit more sharply than they would up until that legislation. Or it might mean that there's going to be like two markets, one for certified buildings, one for non-certified buildings for owner unions that just don't give a stuff and chose not to comply. Um, Mm -hmm. In which case the the value of these non-certified properties might suddenly drop off a cliff kind of thing. And that legislation is at the moment planned for properties that are 40 years and older. So again, for that reason as well, if you buy something that's 30 years or younger, it gives you at least five, six, seven years before you start thinking about, okay, maybe I should resell this one before that legislation starts affecting it. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking at the moment, unless something you know fundamentally changes in the market, we're recommending if you're buying into an owner union situation, make it 30 years and younger. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right, that answers that. Thank you. Um, so, so basically, uh, you're you're pretty safe. No one's going to come in and just right right out from under you type of thing. It, it usually you know takes a while, and you know basically there'll be warning signs. Unit, <laughs> right. If if it's a ten unit apartment, they have to get at least eight people to agree to sell their Correct. their places. Right. Okay, I get it. All right. Uh, Although mind how, you, eight eight or ten unit uh, apartment buildings are usually owned by a single owner. It's not going to be usually not going to be an owner union thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I was just doing that for the math, but uh, yeah. Okay. Let, let's call it 180. All right. All right. Um, how true is it? Like, for example, in your experience for your clients, um, is it is it uh, pretty much a rule of thumb that you can expect to get about the same or or more when you sell a, a unit than when you bought it? Well, or does the- it really just depend? The main factor, it does depend. The main factor there is actually um, the rental income, right? So these, uh, when you're talking about cheaper, proper, let's call them the cash cows, the ones that generate the highest yields and cost the, uh, the least to buy into. Mm-hmm. So those are usually um, older, smaller uh, units. Let's call them 1R to maybe 1LDK at most. So let's say up to 25 square meters. Um, in most cases. And what that means is 
those are really always going to be investment properties. They're never going to be purchased by owners, occupiers, because anyone who can afford to buy a property, um, whether it's in cash or via mortgage, is going to be aiming for a bigger, fancier, nicer property. Right. And vice versa, the people who actually live in these properties will most likely never be uh, able to afford to buy them. So those smaller, older cash cows uh, are always going to be investment properties. And the market for investment properties is dictated by the rental yield that that property generates, mm-hmm. right? So in, if you look at a family, for example, that's looking for a place to buy, they're looking in you know, their favorite part of town or a few favorite parts of town. They're looking at the size of the property. They're looking at the amenities of the building. They're looking at the distance to the station and how convenient it is to schools or to where um, mom or dad work and so forth. And then they look at other properties in that area and you know, they, they get a sense of what the market is currently offering for these types of properties. And then they buy according to that. So it's based on your basic market fundamentals like anywhere in the world. Right. With investment properties, when people look at and uh, try to evaluate an investment property, which is what we're going to be doing in a few minutes when we dig into the Excel sheets, what they look at is uh, the percentage yield that they get from that investment every year. Mm-hmm. And that's directly tied into how much rent uh, income the property is generating um, every month and every year. Mm-hmm. And the actual percentage at the bottom of it is going to be affected by the rent Uh, by the rent amount, but also by the monthly building fees, right? So if I'm getting, uh, let's make it easy again. If I'm getting uh, 100,000 yen from the property, but I'm paying half of that, let's say 50,000 yen goes to building fees, then the actual net income that I'm getting from that property, uh, aside from a few other smaller expenses, is going to be just half of the gross rental income, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that that property generates, for example, 5% yield every year. 5% 5% being mm-hmm. the, the, the annual yield that I get compared to the capital that I've invested, right? Mm-hmm. If rent for any reason suddenly drops or building fees suddenly shoot up, and that happens as a building gets older or it happens as the area you know, is not super attractive anymore, it happens if, again, there are new developments in the area that, are, you know, that push rent on the older properties down, mm-hmm. If that yield drops to 4%, then the same investor is not going to pay the same price for this property, right? They're going to try right. to reduce the price to bring it back up to 5%, right? The only time where right. they would, the, the only situation where they would potentially accept a lower return is if indeed that property, uh, sorry, that area has gone up in value mm-hmm. and they know that it's just not feasible to get beyond 4% in this area anymore but they have gained in value over time, then in that case, they would say, yeah, okay, well, for example, when we started working, Fukuoka properties were generating um, up to 12, 11, 12% net pre-tax, even in central areas, right? Mm -hmm. These days, because Fukuoka has has become so popular over the last decade, these days, it's about half of that, right? So these days, if we get a property that's generating five to 6% in a central location in Fukuoka, we're very happy. Mm-hmm. And so are most investors um, who are looking at Fukuoka City. So in these cases, the price has retained itself or it maybe even has gone up. In some cases, it has gone up in Fukuoka, especially in central areas. Mm-hmm. And, but in all other cases, all things being the same, if the rental yield has decreased, so will the price of the property. And if it stayed the same, so will the price of the property. Mm-hmm. So the only chance you're going to be seeing for actual growth in the price is if the area is significantly more popular than it was when you purchased, 
or if some miracle happened, you know, Japan's economy takes a leap, giant leap forward, salaries go up and everybody can raise rents, which we've never seen in Japan yet, mm-hmm. um, then that might bring property values up as well. But that's, uh, from my perspective, that's science fiction at this point. Right. Okay. Um, what are the most common unforeseen costs? And is it possible that that completely wrecks a deal for you? I mean, I'm sure it is, but what are the most common unforeseen costs? Like stuff that you would never, stuff that you don't necessarily anticipate whenever you go in to make a purchase? Well, I would say, first off, I would say that they're never unforeseen. Like there's not going to be anything that can happen which is completely unthinkable, which we wouldn't have assumed might happen from the get-go. Okay. Um, It might be, I mean, look, if you're doing it all on your own and it's your first ever time purchasing a property and nobody's consulting to you or, or, you know, you've got nobody's experience to draw on, um, then it might seem unforeseen. But for anyone who's done that or at least read about it, it's not really going to be such a huge surprise because there are certain things that might happen with the property. So let's say the worst case scenario, and that's never happened to us, but it is, a feasible option. Worst mm-hmm. case scenario is you purchase a property. Um, you haven't had any time to, to collect any rental income. And one month later, the building is completely destroyed by an earthquake. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, the only compensation you would have would be your insurance policy, which would, it varies depending on the official evaluation of the property, but let's say the insurance might cover up to 50%. Mm-hmm. And then if the building has, you know, reasonable reserve funds collected, then they would use those reserve funds to first um, demolish the remains of the building and remove it, dispose of it, and then uh, divide the reserve funds between the owners. So you, let's say if the building was well-maintained and collected good reserve funds over time, let's say you would have gotten maybe 20, 30% extra from that distribution. Mm-hmm. And then the owner union will sell the land. So you'll hopefully get some sort of value from the land, assuming that you've purchased in a reasonably attractive location to begin with. Okay. Right? So that, that's the worst case scenario that I can think of. Another bad case, um, let's say that you've purchased a property that is tenanted. So what's called in Japan an owner change. You've purchased the property. There's already a tenant in there. They've been living there for, let's say, 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. which is not uncommon in Japan. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's an attractive factor there because same tenant in place 15, 20 years most likely are going to stay in place for another 10 years at least, right? So it's an yeah, attractive, very stable. Yeah, so it's an attractive prospect to purchase a, a property that's been tenanted for a long time. But let's say that's an elderly tenant and the month after you've purchased, they croak and they die in the unit, mm-hmm. right? And... When you enter the unit, um, well, first off, the police will have to enter the unit because there was a death there. But let's say that you enter the unit, they've cleared the body off. And then you find out that this guy, like many elderly people, especially male, uh, tend to be, um, this guy has just never opened a window in the apartment for the last 10 years. Smokes like a chimney. The entire entire interior is completely gutted. Um, Not gutted in the sense that he's, you know, uh, hacked at the walls and, and caused damage, but it's just com- been completely neglected over the years because he was all he was doing is just going to the convenient back home and smoking. Yeah. And which is, you know, you and I live in Japan. We know that's not completely common thing here. Yeah. 
And uh, let's, you know, to top it off, let's say that he also died in the bath. And the, it was summer and the uh, bath was full of water and it took two weeks to find the body. And I'm saying this because this has actually happened to us, right? Like this is our worst case scenario. Yeah. Right. So again, if we take into account a case like this, so first off, we're talking about, again, studios or one bedroom apartments, right? So to completely gut and completely renovate one of these apartments at worst case is going to be 30, 40,000 US, so three, four million yen, mm -hmm. um, which is not much, but if you've only purchased the property for four million yen, that's double what you've paid for it, right? Right. Right. And then your insurance. So um, we would strongly recommend for anyone buying properties that are going to be tenanted to get um, landlord insurance, which covers uh, death in the property. It's a very cheap insurance policy at the moment. It's about 3,500 yen a year or something ridiculous mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And that covers you for two very important things. One thing it covers you for is a million yen in expenses related to the death. So, you know, clearing a part. Clean Sorry. Yeah, clean up. Yeah, yeah, clean up uh, a large part of the renovation, um, and then even more importantly, depending on what the rental income was, it will cover you for up to two years of missing or reduced rents. Right. So for the next two years, it might even be in your best interest to. I mean, you do have to advertise to, to comply with the insurance policy, but you advertise at the same price. Um, you know, you're not really going out of your way to find a tenant because the insurance will pay you for two years of rental loss of rental income. Mm. Right. And then at the end of yeah. those two years or towards the end of two years, let's say after about a year and a half, then you start working with your property manager on actively looking for a new tenant. And the new tenant coming in might be coming in at a slightly lower rent because the, the property manager do need to let them know that someone's died in the property. And it does carry a bit of a stigma, Yeah, but it's not a stigma equal to like a murder or suicide because those properties might be impossible to lease out um, for to kingdom come kind of thing. Right. So that would be a worst case scenario. If it was That's the worst thing that's ever happened to us. That's why I love telling the story. Oh, all right. We'll talk, we'll talk about that another time, maybe yeah. over over drinks. Oh, no, no. Oh, sorry. No, murder-suicide? No, we haven't. Knock on wood, we haven't oh, okay. had that yet. No, no, no. I oh, mean, okay, the, the, body, okay. the body in the bath story. Oh, the body in the bath. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in that. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. And then how quickly is it? How quickly or easily is it to get out of a deal once you've bought in? For example, you bought in, things aren't, maybe you're not comfortable, things, maybe your your uh, financial situation changes, you know, emergencies, whatever, and you have to get out, you need that money. What, what is, how does that work? Uh, well, the market is super liquid here. It's the world's second biggest property market, second only to the US. Um, and especially at these lower uh uh, these lower prices, we very rarely, I mean, as long as a property is priced properly, if you're, you know, looking for something that's just not achievable, then yes, you, you know, you'll hang on to it for years. But as long as it's properly priced, um, they rarely stay on the market um, longer than a month or two without somebody making an offer. Okay. And that offer, you know, it might be 10% lower than what you're listing it for, but it's not going to be much below that. Okay. Um, but again, this is assuming that it's properly priced and assuming that from the get-go, you've purchased in a location that's going to be reasonably attractive, right? So right. 
if um, if again you're not aware of Japan Japan's specific um, demographics and you purchase in a place that's quickly losing population, for example, mm-hmm. and then yes, it is quite possible that you'll be working very hard to get rid of that property. But if you've purchased an investment property which we're assuming is in a reasonable location and generating or or can generate even if it's vacant at the moment, but it can generate reasonable rental yield, and then it's probably going to sell very quickly. Okay. Again, assuming that you're realistic and you're, you know, you're listing it at a reasonable price. Of course. All right. So before we get into the nuts and bolts, just this uh, one last one. So so, suppose I like, as a Japanese uh, permanent resident, Japanese spouse, um, were to research and find a deal, contact the realtor, negotiate the deal, purchase it, find a management company and start managing the property all on my own. Yep. Uh, how much would it save me, you know, like total and as a percentage of, of the investment or whatever? Oh, not, um, not using us, you mean? Not using you. Yeah. For example, because yeah. you, you've talked about, you know, maybe uh, 20% of the people of your clientele are people that live in Japan. Yep. I think you I think you said before on a, yeah, correct. On a, on a podcast. And so, and I imagine um, those people are kind of like, they don't want to have to deal with all of the things that I just talked about, you know, and um, they just want to, they have this money sitting in the bank or whatever, and they just want to, you know, buy something and then have it generate a little bit of income without too much hassle. Yep. And that's why they go through someone like, someone like you. So um, if, if I wanted to make, every yen count yep. and do it all on my own and and you know use my wife as you know as a translator and all that yeah um you know what would the difference be so we charge depending on the on the purchase price uh, from what you're describing i think you were mentioning up to about fifty thousand us right right so on that level we charge five percent plus tax um, if it's beyond 6.3%, uh, 6.3 million, we charge 4% plus tax, so 5.5, 4.4. Mm-hmm. Um, and if for any reason you end up purchasing something that's 20 million and over, that's 3% plus tax. So that's what you save on the purchase by not using us. Okay. Um, and on the monthly, um, depending on the, again, the rental income that you're generating, we charge, we basically charge 2% plus tax of the gross rental income. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't charge when the property is vacant, similar to a property manager, um, but we charge a small placement fee when we place a tenant, again, similar to a property manager, which is half a month of rent. So it's 2% plus tax um, during uh, tenancies and then half a month of rent when we populate a property for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a minimum cap on both purchase and management. So for the purchase, our minimum is 250,000 yen. So 5% mm-hmm. of the 5 million yen property. Mm-hmm. And for the management, it's a uh, uh, one hour of work per month, which is 2,800 yen for us. So okay. with, with tax, that works out to be about 3,000 yen per month. Okay, so um, do, do you have clients that have used you to make a purchase, to find and make a purchase, but they don't, they don't use you for the... I mean, if you live in Japan, like... Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for, because and like also, if, if... we also have clients like in your situation who are comfortable uh, dealing even during the purchase, they're comfortable communicating, but they just want advice and consultation along the way. 
mm-hmm. in which case you can just hire us on an hourly basis. So we've got a minimum hourly bank of 10 hours. So that's again, 10 times 3000 yen. Mm-hmm. And for that, um, we'll just consult you and, and uh, you know, advise you and pinpoint, it, you know, just tell you what kind of questions to ask or what sort of information to ask for uh, from the seller and the realtor along the way. Mm-hmm. But for that hourly, um, for that hourly way of charging, we're not go- going to be communicating with any third parties on your behalf. So we're only communicating with you. Okay. Whereas with the full facilitation fee, we can handle everything on your behalf. We can do all the communications. We'll t- what happens is um, Japan being Japan, people here, for some reason, that, that actually blows my mind. But people here, just when they want to talk to someone, they just pick up the phone and call. Um, they don't send a message saying, uh, can we schedule a call? They don't say, is it convenient? They don't leave a voice message if you're not answering the phone. They just keep on calling until they actually get a hold of you. And they um, do that on Saturdays. They do that on Sundays. They do that in the evenings. <laughs> and for that, I mean, we we just we can't do that on an hourly basis because every time the phone rings, we have to pick up a notepad and scribble down how you know how long we've spoken to them, and we just can't do that. So, right. as long as we're only communicating with you, we can provide consultation on an hourly basis. But I, I would add there that um, are you. Uh, how fluent are you in written Japanese? Like legalese, uh, legalese uh, you know, yeah. kanji contracts that are full of legal terms and so forth. I mean, yeah, for me that would be that would be difficult. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, that that would I would have to rely on on my wife if okay. If we so were you to do before you go that route, you definitely want to make sure that she's fully on board with that. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, because she will need to be the one reading and interpreting um complicated documents it's not just a matter of relaying a message or two right yeah okay good all right that's all i mean we've been talking for a long time but um that's yeah that's all i had uh for the initial stuff other stuff i think will probably pop up as we start looking at at the document if you want to if we want to go ahead and get into that We interrupt this broadcast, I always wanted to say this, we interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. 
And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com, well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Let me bring up. So I put together some sample properties. Um, you've mentioned, let me just share the screen. You've mentioned them. Um, um, you know, anywhere between 20 to 100,000. But again, because of the nature of these um, properties, we're looking mainly for the ones that will generate the highest um, reasonable yield percentage every year. Mm -hmm. And those usually tend to be under 100,000 uh, US, so under 10 million yen, unless they're central um, Tokyo or central Osaka, in which case, again, yield is pretty low to begin with. So the highest one I think I've got here is maybe 6.5 or 7 million yen. Okay. Um, but I think that should be good enough for what we're discussing. So let me share that. You seeing that? Yes. Okay. So let's go from left to right. So this one, and these are all deals you can see here. So I should make that a bit. Let me just unlock that. So these are all properties that have been... Um, settled on in the last couple of years so even with covid prices now are pretty much the same so all, all of these deals that we're looking at now are probably quite achievable uh, in today's market as well okay okay so the first one we're looking at so here's what we put on the excel sheet the property name uh, the, just the name of the building uh, which floor it's in so this is the second of fifth floors Mm -hmm. Second of five floors. Um, with properties that are five floors and under, you want to confirm um, if the property is on the third, fourth, or fifth floor, you want to check whether there's an elevator. And mm -hmm. um, because buildings that are under, uh, that are five floors or under, um, are not mandated by law to have an elevator. Six floor above must have an elevator. Okay. Okay, so in this case, we're looking at a second floor unit. So not a big deal. I mean, um, in Japan, second floor means first floor in other parts of the world. So Really, I mean, even a you know obachan with heavy shopping baskets could go up one floor in most cases, right? And first floor um, is also usually not advisable unless the building is well secured and walled off from the street because um, single females don't want to live on the first floor if someone could just pass by the balcony and peek in, right? Um, but second floor, whether the building has an elevator or not, is is a is a you know, easy enough access and it's not on the street. So we're happy with that. This is Kumamoto City, which um, until 2020 was gaining in population. Um, I think, uh, sorry, until 2015 was gaining in population. Now we've just finally received the 2020 population census and it's actually stopped gaining in population. Um, so until we received the latest census, Kumamoto was an attractive investment destination. At the moment, I would say it still is because it's definitely not dropping significantly. And also I've got a hunch that with COVID and, you know, not, not everyone, but quite a few offices are switching over to remote work. 
Um, so I'm getting a feeling that um, prefectural capitals uh, would gain in population if we look at numbers in 2025, if this trend continues. But anyway, it's not a bad city to invest in. It's um, medium-sized, I think about 750,000 uh, population-wise from memory. And because it's not a major metropolitan, I mean, it's prefectural capital, it's the biggest city in the prefecture and in, in a couple of prefectures neighboring it, but it's not um, Nagoya, Fukuoka, Tokyo, Osaka. It's not a major metropolitan capital, which means that prices in the city have not gone up to any significant degree in the last decade. And what that does is when we go down a bit later, you'll see that it gives us higher yields than we would be able to achieve in uh, Fukuoka city, for example. Okay. Okay. Um, four minute walk to the nearest uh, train station in this case, but in Kumamoto city specifically, um, tram is actually the, um, the most popular uh, mode of transit. Um, but this one is actually within four minute walk to a train station. So that's like uh, well and above what you'd normally get in Kumamoto, which is usually going to be tram. And then the size of the, so this is a one hour, a studio property. The size mm -hmm. is quite big for a one hour. So if you look at a one hour property um, in a city in Japan, they can often be below 20 square meters. Um, in super central areas, as low as 12 or 13 square meters even, which is basically just a futon and not, not much else. Right. This one's 25, so it's a relatively larger studio. 40 units in the building. We'll see why that matters in a minute. The purchase price is um, the lower end of what you've described, so two point, uh, about 2.5 million yen. So about uh, today's numbers, I think about 23,000 US. Mm -hmm. Renting out for 31,000, uh, so about 300 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. This is what you're paying. Those two numbers are what you're paying the uh, owner union every month. So this is for management of the building, uh, you know, the common areas. They might have an on-site manager that comes in once or twice a week. Uh, if there's a couple of trees outside gardening, um, you know, water for, for common areas, electricity for common areas and so forth. And this is the reserve funds, which is the amount of money that they put aside every month for future renovations and bigger maintenance items. Okay. So, yeah, I... I've heard you talk about reserve fund pool often in yep. your in your talks. So yep. that's basically exactly what you said. And and I think you you've it, is it possible to know what's the total amount in a reserve fund before yep. you go in on a purchase? And you all have that kind to of know. Stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you have to know. We'll we'll get okay. to that in a minute. All right. So the property is tenanted, and it was built in 1991. So. At the time of purchase, it was within our 30-year um, limit that we recommend. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, I probably would have started thinking about this being a border case because we're in 2021 mm -hmm. now, right? Um, but still, if, it, if, it's, if it's a very attractive deal, I would say go for it. Um, it's still within that 30-year mark even today. From next year, maybe I'd start, you know, not necessarily having second thoughts, but I, I'd want it to be a really attractive deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so in this case, this property was sold by a realtor. So there's no realtor fee involved. If there would have been a realtor fee involved, let's, let's, let's turn this into a normal property. So it would have been this uh, times... 3% plus 60,000, oh, and plus tax, sorry. So let's put all of that in brackets, brackets, the other bracket, thank you. And 
times 1.1, just to add consumption tax 10%, okay? So the realtor fee would have been yay much. Mm -hmm. And then registration, legal, and stamp duty. These are actual numbers. So we didn't know this when we actually, to make this easier for you to see, let's add some percentages here. So this is... Purchase price times 3% plus 60,000. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have done this. I think that looks. Yep, okay, same thing. Ignore me. Okay, so if you look at the total purchase cost, this one was actually 25% in purchase costs. And the reason for that is us, because we have a minimum fee of 250,000 yen. So even if the property is super, super, super cheap, we're not going to charge less than that because it's the same amount of work involved on our end. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, what, so this particular purchase, uh, the cheaper the property, the more the, the total purchase costs are going to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then... These are the monthly costs. So, sorry. So, so, let's continue to go through these. So, this is the registration, legal, and stamp duty. Again, for cheaper properties, it's going to be a higher percentage. For uh, more expensive properties, it's going to be lesser than that. In this case, it's about five and a half percent in re uh, registration, legal, and stamp duty. And um, this is our fee. And this is the purchase tax. At the time of settlement, we can only assume it. So, we take a worst case scenario of 2.6%. We've never seen it go beyond that. that. That varies depending on the official evaluation, which is different to market price. Um, but we assume this, it's probably going to end up being somewhere like 1.7% or something like that. Okay. Usually lower than that. Um, insurance, again, we can only assume it before settlement because we only get the actual uh, policy closer to settlement, but it's only, it's only going to be a few bucks a month in any case. It's not going to break a deal. Rent management, this is the property manager's fee, which is 5% plus tax, 5% uh, of the gross rental income plus tax. So Building that's different. That's different from the management fee up here that you pay our union. Which management fee? Because Sorry? It's, a, it's totally separate. Up here at the, the very top, the, yeah. the southern so rent price. These yeah. two fees, which we add up here under building fees, oh, okay. these go to the owner union. To the company, uh, to the either to the owner union directly or um, to the company that manages the building on behalf of the owner union, mm -hmm. but they got nothing to do with the tenants. They take care of the building itself. Whether the unit okay. is vacant or tenanted, they don't care, and they just take care of what needs to be done with the structure. Mm -hmm. um, this one goes to the property manager, the person who actually finds and places tenants, collects the rent from them every month. And, um, you know, takes care of maintenance requests if they have any and lets you know if there are any problems with a tenant. Okay. And that's somebody that you hire as the landlord. It's got nothing to do with the building. So two, two okay. separate companies. And down here is our fee, which again, we have a minimum monthly fee. Okay. Okay. And then, so of that 31000 in rent every month, you're paying 13547 in monthly fees. Okay. 
Okay. And these are all settlement adjustments. We can get into them if you want. I'll explain what they mean in a minute, but these don't actually make a difference to your yield. So uh, let's leave them aside for a moment. And then that turns into, that's ugly. That turns into, so there's the gross yield that we're getting the rental income from the tenant every month. And after we've deducted these, these are the net numbers. So every month, 17,453, annually 209,440, so about 2,000 bucks a year in net mm -hmm. rental, in well, net pre-tax rental income, because you right. still need to pay your income tax and property tax. Mm -hmm. And that translates into 6.8, so close to 7% return on your investment every year. Pre-tax. Pre-tax. So if you want to see how long it would take you, that's down here. It would take you about 14 and a half years to recoup your initial investment. Mm. Right? So what I was explaining before about selling a property, um, let's say that you've had the property for five years, right? So you've gained five times that, right? So you've mm -hmm. gotten a million. After five years, you've recouped about a million yen. Mm-hmm. If this property now sells for less, let's say instead of two and a half, it sells for two million, right? You've still made this minus, uh, sorry, rather, um, this minus 2.5 plus two. Well, I've, I've added a zero there, haven't I? Yeah. Right. So you've still made about a hundred thousand a year, even if, you know, for some reason, it's very hard to imagine that a property that's this cheap, uh, 2.45 property that's this cheap is not likely to be losing value anymore. It's most likely at the end of its rope. Mm -hmm. And also in Kumamoto specifically, um, we know from the property manager that we work with with uh, there, and there are quite a few, it's an older city with a lot of, um, not destitute, but just elderly tenants without families. So there are a lot of people who are on government support, welfare of some sort, and need a place to live. And 31,000 a month is what the government actually allocates them uh, as rental allowance. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of them waiting to rent at any given time. So we know that we're always going to get this particular rent price in Kumamoto. Mm. So because, because we know that rent is not going to be much lower than that, we can assume that the price, because again, these are investment properties and they're priced based on the rental income. So we're pretty much safe to assume that the price will not drop down significantly. Okay, where it might drop down is, for example, as the building gets older, and again, this is a 30-year-old building, as we approach 40 years, um, the owner union might need to start bringing uh, monthly fees up significantly, right? So let's say this goes up to 6,000 yen, and this goes up to 5,000 yen, for example. It's kind of extreme, but let's assume because it might, worst case, it might happen. So we've lost from 7% rental yield Annually, we've gone down to 5.7. Now, if we try to sell this property to one of our customers, for example, because when we have customers who want to liquidate the property, we would usually have other customers who are waiting to buy. So the first thing we try to do is to sell it to one of our existing clients, which means that, again, we won't have to use a realtor, and then this would be zero again. 
So if we can sell it to an existing client, 6% in Kumamoto might be pushing it a little bit because they can get close to 6% even in Fukuoka City. So in that case, we'd say, well, you know, look, Brian, we better reduce, if you want to sell to one of our clients, we better reduce this to 2.2. That brings them closer to 7% again. They should be happy with that, hmm. right? But again, if you've sold hmm. it after five years, then, you know, you've, you've still, you've made enough income. That everything everything I'm saying makes sense or am I speaking Chinese? Yeah. No, no, no. It makes sense. Yeah. All right. So now let, let's look at some other, other factors. So this, for example, is your property tax, right? So every year you're going to be paying this much in property tax, uh, which equates to, again, for cheaper properties, it's going to be a higher percentage. Expensive properties, it's going to be a lower percentage, usually somewhere between three quarters of a percent to one and a half percent of the purchase price every year. Okay. So okay. if you want to try to get your net net income, you maybe want to look at this minus this and then get a percentage for, uh, how did we work that out? Let's copy that. to here, but instead of C25, let's grab D25. Whoops, not you. I want you to come here. Okay, so here, E12, C12, no, so that's still, So that's still this, and that is still D12. What have I done here? Sorry, F2. Oh, purchase price. Okay, that's where I've gone wrong. This. And this is this. Okay, so if you if you um, deduct the annual property tax amount, it usually brings you down again for cheaper properties more, more expensive properties less. But you can assume about one percent lower for property tax. Yeah. And then for your income tax, that really depends on your own income situation. So I don't know right. what bra bracket you're in, how much you're paying annually, but for the first three years, you would be claiming all of your purchase costs um, and deducting them from the uh, profit. So for the first three years, it's probably not going to do anything to your income tax. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, I mean, look, it's annually about 2000 bucks a year. So probably not going to make a huge dent um, in your income tax requirements. But if it, you know, just takes you past the bracket where you go from 5% to 10%, that's something that you want to maybe chat with an accountant with uh, about right. before you purchase. Okay. But normally depending on your individual tax scenario and depending on the price of the property, we would tell people that, um, 
somewhere between half a percent to one and a half percent um, would be the difference between net pre-tax and net net. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so that's one. Now let's look at the um, property itself. Give me a second. Okay, so this is just just general spiel about uh, Kumamoto City. We've explained about the city itself. Um, this one is actually close to a college. So if and when for any reason we can't get a, a tenant to pay um, 31,000, we want to aim for higher than that. We might be able to get a student tenant to pay a bit more. And it's 12 minute walk to Kumamoto Castle. So super central location. That's why there's a train station next to it and not just trams. Mm -hmm. um, Advantages of this particular unit, it was built post-1990, which in most cases, it means the uh, toilet and bathroom are separate, mm -hmm. uh, which for a Japanese tenant is a big deal. They don't like to um, shit where they bathe. And it's got a built-in closet, which usually is the case, again, for 1990+. Plus. And this one has a laundry bay. That's not a given in properties that were built pre-2000 or even 2010. Um, so sometimes if you purchase a property that doesn't have a laundry bay, for example, we'd recommend to put one in uh, once a tenant moves out, take that opportunity and put in a laundry bay. Mm -hmm. Because again, single females don't like to take their underwear to wash outside. Right. And some properties, uh, some buildings have a laundry room at the ground floor, which is, you know, the next best thing. But if you can have a laundry bay in the unit, it's always advisable. And they, they're not that much to install. They're usually somewhere between 80,000 to 120,000, usually around 80,000 uh, yen to install. So for an extra thousand bucks, you make the property a lot more attractive to, um, you just appeal to a wider tenant base. Okay, but this one already has a laundry bay built in. This is the tenant that we had in it when we purchased it. A 29-year-old single female in residence since 2014. So at the time of purchase, uh, 2014. At the time of purchase, she was in residence for six years and no late payments or other issues as is usually the case in Japan. And particularly single females in their 30s plus are usually the best tenant profile. Um, because again, not nice to say, but they don't tend to get married or promoted much in Japan beyond that point. Mm -hmm. Right. So if it's a lower income, single female in her thirties plus, she's most likely going to remain in that property until she needs to check into a hospital because she's old. Mm -hmm. Most likely they do occasionally get relocated for work. They do occasionally get married. Um, but in most cases, they're, they're the probably, and because they're uh, female, they take care of the property a lot better than your single males. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can have a quick look at the photos if you want for this one. And then we'll get into the building itself. So we can't see the interior if the property has a tenant in it. Uh, just there's no interior inspections in Japan. But we do have a look at the exterior and we can have a look at the uh, floor plan. That's usually going to be the only things that we'll be able to see um, with tenanted properties. Okay, are you good for time still? 
Yeah, uh, a little bit longer, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so let, let, let's just look at one more property. Uh, well, before that, let me just scroll down a little bit. So here's the what we were talking about, the reserve funds and so forth. So this is probably, aside from the tenant profile, if it's tenanted, this is the most important part of the due diligence. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure, we want to see how much is in the reserve fund. And then we divide it by the number of units in the building. And assuming that all units are similar size, similar price, it gives us the number, uh, the amount that, uh, that the reserve fund pool has per unit owner. And then we divide that by the purchase price to factor how much of your purchase cost is covered in the reserve funds. So in this case, we've got about a fifth of the purchase price, about 20% of the purchase price covered within the reserve funds. Mm -hmm. And because at the time of purchase, we know that 10 years ago, the big ticket items, so the exterior, the roof, um, and the exposed iron, these are the that along with the elevators are the biggest ticket items that buildings will have to renovate every say 15 years mm -hmm. and since that was done 10 years ago then we're safe to assume that at least for the next five years it's not likely that building fees will suddenly go high or at least too high because the, the owner union and the building management company do have enough in the reserve funds to carry on um, non-major maintenance and renovations mm. If this was severely depleted without any sort of um, big ticket items done in the last 10 years, then we would probably point out that it's very likely that building fees will go up soon because there's going to be a big renovation required and they just don't have enough to cover it. Mm. But in this case, everything seems at least borderline, if not better. So we were okay. We okayed the deal. Okay. All right. And yeah. The, really, the deciding factor here was the tenant profile because she's been in there for six years. She's of the tenant profile that doesn't tend to move around much at all in Japan. Mm -hmm. And we're quite confident that we'll be, um, we've got a very good chance of keeping her for another you know, significant number of years. So as long as the other factors are not you know, red flags, we were quite happy with it. All right. Um, okay, so this one's at about 50,000. This one's about 60,000. And that's a building. Uh, so do you want to look at another one of these or is it enough for you? Yeah, let's look at one more just to, uh, okay, as a comparison. Cheap, cheapest one, mid range one, or building? Which one do you want? How about the mid range one? Mid range one. Okay. So this one, this one is in Tokyo. Um, mm -hmm. And if you have a quick, we don't need to review everything now. You sort of understand what they mean. If you have a look, yeah. quick look down here, this kind of, this, this was what we got in Kumamoto, right? Very close mm -hmm. to this yield. Yeah. So to get this sort of yield in Tokyo is, is bloody phenomenal. This is very, very unusual. Um, and this was a deal that as soon as we saw that, we um, highly, highly, highly recommended to the client to jump on it before somebody else does. Um, because to find something like this in Tokyo is very rare. And in Tokyo specifically, um, we're happy with slightly older buildings because um, land in Tokyo, obviously in good locations in Tokyo, is, um, is, is very, very coveted. So it's very likely that we're going to get a good price if and when that building is bought under us. And even if it's old enough for the owner union to decide to demolish and sell the land to a developer, it's still going to get a good price, right? Mm -hmm. So in that particular case, 
we were okay with um, foregoing a 30-year uh, rule. This kind of yield, this kind of location in Tokyo. So the location is quite attractive, um, kind of bohemian area of Tokyo. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Suginamiku. Um, animation studios, cafes, galleries, it's a really popular location. This particular tenant is a kind of hikikomori as it turned out, but uh, we're very confident that if and when she moves out, it's going to be very easy, uh, as with most um, central Tokyo properties, it will be quite easy to repopulate it. Mm -hmm. um, 27 units in the building, 6.4 million, which again is a phenomenal price for Tokyo. Uh, rent price 65,000, management, management fees, reserve funds, relatively high, but that does make sense for um, Tokyo and it does make sense for the age of the building. They do need to put more money aside for renovations and maintenance as it gets older. Mm -hmm. okay. And this one was actually built, even though it was built in 1982, the uh, construction plans were drawn before June 1981, which is when the new earthquake resistant regulations came in. So this one's actually built pre-1981 earthquake resistance standards, which is probably another reason for the uh, relatively low price. And doesn't mean that the building is going to come crashing down in an earthquake, but there will be more damage to it in case of an earthquake. Mm. So it will cost more to uh, bring up to speed. So everything here is about the same. As you can see, our fee um, is now more down to reason because we're de dealing with a property that's over 5 million yen. Mm -hmm. um, realtor fee, again, becomes lower as the property becomes pricier. Same goes for registration for legal fees. Um, and then purchase tax, again, this is assumed at the time of purchase, but is not going to be beyond that. So if you look at the first one, 25% in purchase costs, the pricier the property gets, the lower you're paying in uh, purchase costs. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. Rent management, again, that's a given, usually a given all across Japan, aside from a few cities. Uh, building fees is just adding these two up. Um, our fee, again, the same. We've got a minimum uh, we you normally, if the property is pricier and the rent is much higher, we're going to be charging 2%, but usually it's going to be below that. So our minimum is still 3,000 yen. And then the area we've covered, unit info, right? Again, uh, 23 square meters for a good location in Tokyo is, is very, very rare. They're usually much smaller than that if they're at this price range in the 1K, 1R type properties. Mm-hmm. Um, single female, 34-year-old. So again, on paper, at least an attractive profile. This one turned out to be a bit non-communicative. So, But I mean, it was just a case of her not returning the new... I mean, wh when we purchase a property on behalf of a client, we would normally be assigning a new property manager because we've got ones that we work with in each city and we want to keep working with them. They know how we like to do things. Mm -hmm. And they also deposit all of the uh, all of our clients' income in one bulk payment, so we don't have to charge each customer for a full bank charge. Mm -hmm. um, so when we changed the property manager over, this tenant was just not communicative. She needed to sign a new lease. She needed to deposit money to a new property manager's account. And it just took a month or two to actually get to her and get her to start doing that. And didn't respond, didn't respond, didn't respond. And as usual with Japanese tenants, we sent her a letter saying, if you don't respond, we will have to kick you out. And then she responded and everything became okay again. And now she's, since then, she's been paying regularly, um, not a problem. And tenancy leases in Japan are automatically renewed unless somebody gives notice. So we'll most likely not have to talk to her again until the day she dies kind of thing. Oh. 
Um, she has rent insurance, which is a crucial security that we would like to insist on. If we inherit the property with a tenant inside, they might not have rent insurance or a guarantee company, as they're called here. Mm-hmm. And they might have only paid a security deposit. She's done both in her case, but we like to have a guarantee company. So even if we inherited a tenant, uh, we might ask the tenant, we might ask the property manager to ask that tenant to sign up for rent insurance guarantee company. And what that does is it covers the landlord for up to three months of uh, missing or delayed payments, as opposed to the security deposit, which is usually just one month. In her case, it's actually half a month. Mm-hmm. And also in case for some reason the tenant absconds or just disappears um, and you have to apply to court to uh, single, single-sidedly single terminate the lease, then the rent insurance will cover you until the court case is finalized and you've got the permission to enter and clear up the unit. And that can often take up to a year. So a guarantee company rent insurance is definitely the preferred form of security. If the tenant you've inherited doesn't have that, um, it's a good idea to ask the PM to get them to sign up for one, which means that you'll have to pay their sign-up fee because you can't suddenly ask them to pay money for that. But the sign-up fee is usually just equal to half or one month of rent, and it's very worth it. Okay, she has a personal guarantor, her sister, in this case, pretty meaningless because the sister says she doesn't want to have anything to do with her when we couldn't contact her. But that's why uh, <laughs> personal guarantors are not, we don't really treat them as security. I mean, they're, they're supposed, to, they're the worst possible kind of security because often they'll just, like if it's an elderly parent, they might have already died, unless it's an employer. If it's an employer, it's a good personal guarantor. Um, all other cases, family members, friends, we don't really treat them as security. And this, this is unusual, but in her particular case, the tenant lease actually includes a, an added renewal fee that she needs to pay to the owner every two years. Um, it's not something that we would put uh, in typical tenancy leases. We try to avoid unfair uh, fees to tenants if we can. We even try to avoid the, the reikin if we can, which is still commonly charged in Japan for some reason. Mm-hmm. But on raking, we have to go with whatever. I mean, property managers in particular cities um, uh, just have their ways. And if that's the way they do business, we're not going to force them out of it. But if if two or three months have passed and we're not getting a, a tenant for a vacant unit, we might say, well, you know, Mr. Property Manager, why don't you drop the raking? Because you're, you're affecting our income. Mm-hmm. Okay, and same story, uh, renovation, reserve fund, about 22 million, which covers in this case up to about 13% of each unit price. Um, but again, here, even within three or four years, we see that the elevators have been renewed, which is a major ticket item that needs to be done every 20 years or so. Exposed iron was done, and nine years before purchase, the roof was done. And the exterior was done a bit long ago. So we know that there's probably one big renovation coming. Um, But still, the reserve fund pool is not depleted. There's 13% of the total cost of the property uh, covered. So we're pretty comfortable with that. And again, taking everything else into consideration, the tenant profile, or at least what we thought was the tenant profile on paper, the yield um, and the price of the unit in a location like this in Tokyo, no red flags and, um, you know, very, very attractive. So we just, we went for it instantly. All right. 
So what, what we reviewed with those two properties is the, the type of due diligence and deal selection that we would be practicing on your behalf. Yeah. Or if you're feeling comfortable researching properties, contacting agents on your own, and then just you know come to us with potentials and get our view on them, then you can just take us on an hourly basis. But in that case, again, I would advise that your wife be fully on board before you pull the trigger. Right. I mean, I look, yes. even if she says yes and then changes her mind, you can bring us on midway. Um, but just to uh, avoid a marital conflict, maybe have a chat with her first. <laughs> All right, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I think I uh, this is a good, uh, you know, looking at the numbers and seeing how everything shakes out is, uh, you know, is a good is a good way. And I think, uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll send you this. Uh, I'll send you this spreadsheet to look at. Okay, yeah. Um, you can review it with her. Um, I don't have a version of it in Japanese, I'm afraid. Okay, no, that's um, fine. But, um, I mean, look, if you look at, Online listings together, for example, sit down together with your wife should be fairly easy for you to, to, you know, just use this spreadsheet to, you know, put in the purchase price, put in the rent price, put in the monthly fees, and then everything else sort of populates itself. So those, um, those real estate websites, they'll have all this information on it. Yes. Just don't, don't look at the yield that they quote. They quote all kinds of wacky yields, gross yield, which is, you know, completely not connected to reality and they quote a net yield which doesn't include the purchase costs and doesn't include the property so don't look at the yield percentages that they quote just mm -hmm. put the number in here and just have a look at what comes up here mm -hmm. that's the real net pre-tax yield you're going to get all right okay hey man thanks a lot for your time today it was it was good chatting and uh learned a lot Entirely my pleasure. And thank you for generating such a useful content. I can't believe actually we haven't done this with anyone else yet. All right. <laughs> We've done parts I... of it, but uh, not to this extent. All right. Awesome. So thanks for your time. All right, man. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Okay. Bye. So there you have it. Really good, long and detailed conversation, which may be relevant to many of you out there who find yourselves in similar situations of wanting to kick off your property investment portfolio in Japan, but may be facing some resistance from your partner and also hopefully some solid actual property deal review and number crunching. Hope you found some value in this one. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. 
Hope to have you with us again next time, and until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku! Yoroshiku!